You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Please be seated and let's turn to Psalm 63 on page 579, entitled Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Well, we're going to look at this um, for a wee while, and you'll see from the title, which is part of um, the Hebrew text, is part of the scripture, that it's a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. It's one of these chapters of the Bible that whenever I read it, I just love it, and I've never grown tired of Uh, these words because they're just so rich and so helpful and I hope that you'll find them helpful. This was David's desert experience and uh, those of you who know your Bibles well will know what that is, that he was fleeing from his own son Absalom wanting to kill him. Now you might be here with particular griefs and sorrows. I think of a man I met just six weeks ago who's doing a good work across St. Andrews with Young Life and uh, he's been told he has a month to live and he just found that out this week and he has four young children and uh, we pray for him. His name is Jeff Stables. I suspect most of us are not in that category but all of us, or many of us anyway, will have our own concerns and our own worries and our own sorrows. And David certainly did. your son wanting to kill you. You're not talking about a row here. You're talking about such a disruption in the family life. In the covenant community, your own son, you as the king. I'll not read the whole passage, but if you read 2 Samuel 15, 16, and 17, you would get it. Um, 2 Samuel 15, as David left Jerusalem, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, And all the people moved on towards the desert. It goes on to say that Zadok and Abiathar took the ark back to Jerusalem. David then said that he would wait until he had word from them. And chapter 16, an example of what was happening. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. And then in chapter 17, some people came to David and to uh, the 
people who were with him, bringing them bedding and clothes and pottery and food. Um, It lists them as wheat, barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curd, sheep and cheese uh, from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. This is a literal desert, but all of us, I suspect, experience desert periods in our own lives. And this is a song or a psalm which helps us in that. And it divides very neatly into two parts, verses 1 to 5 and then from verse 6 onwards. And for me, it has been really helpful as a pattern of devotion because verses 1 to 5 are about the morning and verses 6 onwards, I think, reflect what's going on in the evening. And I think in the world in which we live, in our 24-7 world and in our very busy world and in a world where we struggle to get time to stop and to reflect, it's not a bad idea for us to think seriously about reintroducing the habit of early in the morning spending time with God and in the evening spending time with God. And uh, often when I say this, I get a mumbling from people saying, well, that's legalistic and that's your old quiet time devotion stuff and I spend all my time with God. And I say, you're lying because you don't. And it's a nice thought that you say, well, look, I've got my Bible on my phone and on the bus and and when when I have my lunch break and I'm always praying. Well, if that's you, then hallelujah and tell the rest of us how you do it. But most of us find that we are way too stressed, way too pushed, we don't have time, and unless we specifically make time, then we won't. And I want to use this psalm to show how that can work. What's interesting in this, verse 1, his present condition, you would think he would be concerned about eating and drinking because he is... He and the people around him are hungry, they are thirsty, they're in a desert, they don't have all the luxuries of the palace, all the luxuries of the city. But look what his concern is for. He's concerned for his relationship with God. And isn't it interesting how often that is the case? That when you have plenty, you're concerned about what you have. When you have very little you're often concerned about God. Why? Because then your security is not in things. When you have plenty, your security tends to be in those things. But here, David has this extraordinary thing where his soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, where there is this this thirst for God gripping his whole being, body and soul. If I can be really personal and ask you, when did that last happen to you? How many times do you come to church tired and you expect to remain tired? I wonder how many Christians just now are sitting at home in Dundee because uh, this has become a fairly normal thing in Christian circles now, sitting at home, not because they have to look after their children, not because they, uh, or they're out to work or whatever, but sitting at home just because they're tired and Life is so hectic and life is so busy and they just want to chill out. And you're thinking, yes, but 
if you had a thirst and a hunger for God. Now, coming to church doesn't give you that thirst and hunger, but very often it is an expression of it. And I don't even want to just associate it with coming to church. I want to associate it with reading the word of God. You read the word of God, yes, out of duty, and that's not a bad thing. But when did we last read the word of God? Because we were just desperate to hear from God. It's meeting with other Christians, just in fellowship. Say, I I just want to be with other Christians. He says, you're my God. This is the very heart of the covenant that we are God's people, that we belong to God, that God says to us, you are my people. And we say to him, you are my God. And notice here the priority First thing in the morning, earnestly I seek you. Now, some different translations will have early in the morning. And the reason for that is that the word for seek is linked with the word for morning, and the two are put together. So it's difficult to actually translate it, but it does mean first thing in the morning, early in the morning, I seek you. In Psalm uh, 57 and verse 8, the same thing that's there. And what strikes me about this is the intensity of the desire. He is restless and unsatisfied without God. Uh, Sinclair this morning when he gave the illustration (coughs) of the love letter written with real ink. And uh, I need to inform you that real ink, by the way, is on the way back. That There's been a run on Lamy pens and so on. And this was before Sinclair preached about it. Uh, but real ink is so great to use. I love using real ink. Um, wrecks your shirts as well if you forget to put the lid back on. But um, when he was talking about that this morning and uh, spoke about the letter that the young lady got from her fiancé or future husband, and as she's looking back over it, it's not just the fact that a letter is written and it's written with real ink and so on. It's the intensity and the desire that is there that really strikes. And that, for me, is what strikes home here about David's passion. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land. Psalm 143, verse 6, I spread out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Spurgeon, as always, gets it spot on. Our misery is that we thirst so little for these sublime things and so much for the mocking trifles of time and sense. The sight of God was enough for David, but nothing short of that would content him. So think about what you thirst for. Think about even now, as you're, as you're here, what is your mind on? As I came in here, my daughter tempted me in a very bad way because she came in with pizza Uh, wonderful, wonderful pizza. Um, I had to have a bite of it, but that started me thinking about it. And you think about, well, I remember when I used to go to church as a small child in the evening, my parents would take me along, and one of the rewards of going to the Dingwall Brethren, which was about 30 miles from our home, was on the way back, we always got um, fish and chips, and they weren't that Sabbatarian. But many times I was sitting in the church thinking about, I'm going to get fish and chips anyway on the way home. That was worth it. Um, you think about what you hunger and what you thirst for. None of these things are wrong. Think about all the things this week that you are looking forward to. I hope you've got something you're looking forward to. Something that just for you is just a real joy, a real pleasure, a real intensity. Something that you really thirst for. You long to see someone you haven't seen for a while. 
You long to speak to one, someone. We have a, a daughter in Australia, as you know. Long to see her. Long to speak to her. But when did you long to see the Lord? When did you long to speak to the Lord? Now, you don't set these up as opposites. They're not opposites. But th- there's a reflection in there. I think one of the big problems we have as Christians is we kind of talk about God in the past. But we don't talk about our or have this intense desire and feeling for God now. So he thinks about his present condition, and his present condition was certainly that he had this longing for God. And you'll notice what he doesn't say is, I'm satisfied. I've got this long. You know, how often do we come to church and sing about how joyful and how satisfied and how happy we are in Jesus when we're not? Because we've actually not thirsted. Our thirst has never been quenched because... We've not thirsted. Verses 2 and 3, he then goes on to talk about his past experiences. I have seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your power and glory. Now what David is doing here is he's reflecting and he's thinking, I had this experience before, but I was in the sanctuary. I was in the presence of the ark. And I saw God. Now, he doesn't mean literally, but he means he so experienced God that God was so real to him as though he was seeing him in front of his very eyes. I have seen your power and glory. I have experienced your love. And he is in the desert and he's reflecting upon that. And I think he is like William Cowper saying, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? It's not a bad thing to think back and say, you know, there was a time when if I went a day without reading the Bible, I was really upset. There was a time when when I went to church, it would start and it would finish and I would think, how did that happen so quickly? And now I find myself, everything's a drag. Everything's spiritually, I'm struggling with everything. It's not a bad thing to remember the past experiences and say, well, if God did that for me in the past, why can't he do it for me now? In fact, the worst experience to have is to become a kind of grumpy old Christian cynic who says, yeah, that happened, but not now. I'll just wait till I get to heaven. And I don't think we should be satisfied with that. We are in a dry and weary land, many of us, and there's a thirst for God. We need to remember what he's done. But then verses four and five are amazing. He says, I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I love the fact that he's hungry and thirsty. He's remembering the past and then with confidence, he's saying about the present and about the future, I will praise you. And three things are mentioned. One is lifting hands. Now, what is it with us that we have so much difficulty with lifting hands? I don't don't do it, okay? Because I'm very self-conscious. I'm very Scottish. I'm very Presbyterian. But my inner hands are being lifted. You know what I mean. Chris is saying that's no use. Uh, But, you know, we we do. And I'll I'll tell you what part of the problem is. Part of the problem is, if you've ever been to a church service where people do the whole Nazi salute thing, and, you know, and, and, or the whole light bulb fixing thing, or, you know, the whole, the, the works, and drawing attention to themselves all the time, 
and you're thinking, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to draw attention to myself. Well, actually, both ways we have to get over ourselves. You are perfectly free in this church to lift your hands. In fact, the scripture commands you to. And those of us who don't do it, we have to find some self-justification for our disobedience uh, in that respect. Psalm 134 verse 2, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Psalm 28 verse 2, hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. 1 Timothy 2.8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now I know people say, well, your physical posture in worship, it doesn't really matter. Really? You go and sit on those couches at the back and slouch during the whole service and teaching God's word to you as you're praying and praising. It says a huge amount. Posture says a huge amount about our attitudes. I'm not arguing for um, kind of hypocrisy and just looking at the outward, but the fact is if your heart's affected, your, your outward is affected as well. Your posture can often reflect your heart. Your, you know, the hanging down hands, the limp hands, the, the, you know, the whole, just I can't be bothered. Your whole body language just says I can't be bothered. I've preached in churches where I've seen men, uh, men in particular actually, bizarrely, I don't think I've ever seen women do this, but I've seen men and they've been sitting at the back and their, their arms are on like that and they're just <sighs> looking around. And these are godly spiritual men, sometimes ministers, just looking around, just examining people and thinking, what are you doing? Or you see people and you're listening to a sermon or whatever and they're going, and you think the tatters and you're going, oh, for goodness sake, you know, what's wrong? Just say what's wrong. And you think our posture says a huge amount about how we're reacting and how we're responding. I don't know if you ever watch the X Factor. I hope you don't. But uh, sometimes on the X Factor, someone will come and stand and sing and the judges are sitting there at the bench and their arms are folded or they're tapping away. But then someone is really brilliant and they're really... In, and suddenly you see the judges, they'll stand up and some of them will stand up and put their hands up like this. What are they doing? They're acknowledging the, the greatness of the person who's singing. You don't, if you go to a football match and someone scores a brilliant goal, you don't go, oh, that was pretty good. I'm quite impressed with that one, you know, mark that on my scorecard. How come in church we do that when we hear about God and we hear about God's word, our responses sometimes maybe say more about the state of our heart than otherwise. Now, I'm not arguing, I'm not saying everyone has to do this or everyone has to say amen at different points. I'm saying you should be free to respond in the way that is appropriate. And one way that's appropriate is certainly to lift hands in different ways. Let me say this in terms of private prayer. I find it very useful when praying the Lord's Prayer to, and to pray the Lord's Prayer often, and there's three different stages for me. One is just simply, our Father, you're lifting your hands to God in heaven. Our Father in heaven. You're lifting, like Jesus lifted his eyes and looked up to heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then pleading like this, give us today our daily bread. And then like this, forgive us our sins. Have mercy, forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And then back to yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I found that a very simple way to help. So he says, I will praise, I will lift my hands. And then he says, I've got a satisfied soul. I love this. He says, my, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. And then he says, my 
soul will be satisfied. I'm thirsty now, but I will be satisfied. And look what he says, with the richest of foods, my soul is feasted. Calvin puts it beautifully, from the instance here set before us, we must learn to be on our God against despondency. In circumstances where we may see the wicked wallowing and rioting in the abundance of the things of this world, while we ourselves are left to pine under the want of them. Lord, why am I in so much trouble financially? Why is there so much difficulty in my work? Why is there so much sickness and illness in my family? Why are we so struggling? And Calvin's point is surely right, that we look and we say, yes, I thirst now, but I will feast. And it won't be just on the things of this world. And so he says, I've got singing lips. And what's for me is absolutely brilliant about this is this is David who's written songs to be sung in the sanctuary. Now they didn't have the temple as such, but the, the ark and so on. And he, is, he remembers that. But there's an incredible devotion. Second Samuel fifteen twenty five. The king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. He was even prepared, if you like. He was even prepared to give up the ark. This great blessing that God had granted. And David says, I'm in the desert now. I'm in the desert. But God's glory, power, and love are revealed in the desert as well. I will praise in the morning. I think just... I want to say one thing about Jesus in the morning. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. You see the person who says, I don't need that because I can, you know, I've got my prayer app on my phone. I can do it on the bus. I can do it at work. I can talk to Jesus anytime. Do you know that Jesus couldn't? That he felt the need he needed to go to a solitary place. Now, it doesn't have to be very early in the morning, but you do need to take time to chill out, to back off from all that's going on and take time to be with God. The day stretches before us in the morning, and for some of us, it's a bit like a weary land, a desert. desert. And we need to come with this prayer, perhaps. Verses 6 to 11, late in the evening, I think this is very, again, very practical teaching. It's not escapism. And here, he's lying on his bed at night. On my bed, I remember you. Why is he remembering God? Because he can't sleep. Because there's great anxiety. Because he's worried. Because he's going to bed, stressed out his head. His son is, after all, trying to kill him. And instead of using that time to lie there and worry... He uses that time to reflect on God and he uses the right use of memory. Google, they don't have this anymore, but they had it as a name once that they wanted to get rid of memory from humanity, that you wouldn't need it anymore because you could just Google it. So you go home and Google the last time the Lord blessed me and see what you find. Google doesn't have your personal experience of God. And will never have your personal experience of many, many things. I remember you. Google won't bring you God. 
we need to sometimes reflect. And in that sense, I think we also need to make sure that what, what we put into our minds, because we put a whole lot of junk in there, and if you put junk in, junk's going to come out. We need to be really careful. I remember you, he says. I shelter and I sing. Look at verse 7. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. It's a, it's a, I sing for joy, actually. The translation really would be much better. I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 61, verses 3 and 4. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Isn't it extraordinary that David expected to experience the presence of God in the dry and weary land as much as he would expect to experience the presence of God under the sanctuary with the ark? I shelter and I sing. See, that's what we're doing. We're running to God. We're clinging to him. Verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The word used there is the same word that's used in Ruth, where uh, at this they wept again, then Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth wouldn't let her go. Isn't Isn't that just for me, just a wonderful picture of what we are doing. And I love the old um, King James version of this. My soul followeth hard after thee. Hard. It's, again, a passion and an intensity. And it's saying, God, I am not going to let go. I can't. I haven't got anything except you. And I'm dry and I'm weary and I'm tired and I'm full of fears and doubts and I'm overwhelmed and I'm hassled and I'm depressed and I'm discouraged. I'm not letting go. I can't let go because without you, I've got nothing. I will sink in these waves. I cling to you. I hold on to your right hand. And it's interesting it's the right hand because the right hand biblically is the idea of the strong hand. And it's saying, I'm holding on to your strong hand because your strong hand is the one that is going to rescue me. And verses 9 and 10, I am protected. The jackals and the scavengers, all these people who are attacking me. And it's interesting here, you see, David doesn't begin, oh Lord, I'm under attack. Oh Lord, I'm facing all these difficulties. Oh Lord, I'm in so much trouble. Please deal with my enemies. He begins, Lord, I hunger for you. And only when he gets towards the end of the song, he says, please deal with my situation. Please deal with my enemies. Because he knows that God's power and justice is greater. There's a contrast here between the mouth that lies and the mouth that praises God. So he says, I'm protected. I am protected. And I will glory and rejoice. Verse 11, note the royal title. But the king, that's himself, will rejoice in God. Why does he say that? Because Absalom has said, you're not the king. You're out. You're out the capital. You're off the throne. You're going to die. And David says, after pleading with the Lord, he says, the king. The king rejoices. He reasserts his calling. It's a bit like um, right at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation when John was on the island of Patmos. All the other apostles were dead. And he says this, 
from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first from, from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. John's just remembering, I've been called by the king of kings. I'm loved and I'm freed. So you lie on bed at night and you are distraught and your mind is playing over and playing over. Why did she say that? Why did this happen? How am I going to pay this bill? What if the doctor's report says this? And there's no use you kind of beating yourself up and saying, I shouldn't think this. I should just trust God. What you need to do is get a better grasp of who God is. I remember you. I shelter and sing. I cling to you. I'm protected. I will glory and rejoice. In the evening, Matthew 26, 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The Lord's Supper was in the evening. And the disciples would always remember that. That Jesus, before he died, sat down with them. That Jesus served them. That Jesus loved them. That Jesus had fellowship with them while facing the enormous burden of the cross. You, in the evening, it's great to have a satisfied soul and to be well feasted. May you have many evenings like that, like when you've had just a great meal and you just lie down in your bed at night and you think, isn't it great? But some evenings it will not be like that and you will need to reflect on who Jesus is and what he did. And that's what we do as we sit at the Lord's table. Well, there's one part of this that for me, I could have um, spent the whole evening. I, I just, these words in verse three, I can't comprehend them because they're just so amazing. Your love is better than life. And I want to finish by just summarizing on that. Your love is better than life. God's covenant love is better than life. As we take communion, please remember that. You can lose your life. Boy, do we cling on to life, don't we? We really, really do. I mean, there are some people who lose hope, that's true. And there are some people who want to give up. When uh, June Carter Cash died, Johnny Cash died within, I think, within six months. Because he just had lo- he, his, his love had gone. And he just lost the will to live. And that sometimes happens with people. But most of us, we have, for most of our lives anyway, we have this just tenacity to hang on to life. Because it's the best thing that we've got. Because if you haven't got life, what have you got? You've got nothing. You're dead. Except for this. Except for this. You will lose your life, but you will never lose the love of God. And therefore, by the way, that's how you gain eternal life. I think that is an extraordinary thing. Do you really believe that God's love is better than life? Do you really believe that as you sit and as you take communion as the wine and the bread which speaks to you of the immense love of Jesus Christ for you, do you really believe that that is better than life? If you do, you have got the absolute secret to contentment. The absolute secret. Because someone can take your life from you, they can't take that love away from you. 
Derek Kidner, in talking about this, says what strikes him in this psalm is not so much the love of God for David, which is true and which is astounding and astonishing, but the love of David for God in the most difficult of circumstances. Oh, for a closer walk with God. In Acts 20, 24, Paul says this, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I don't say this lightly. I think this is a very difficult thing for us to experience and to grasp. And I think that in general, we go on in the school of Christ until this becomes more and more real so that we can actually say it and mean it that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I I will confess this personally that it, I am still learning that lesson. I cling to life really strongly. When I was seriously ill in hospital, apparently I had this real determination in my head to cling on to life. I want to learn that same or greater determination to cling on to God, to hold on to God. Because the life that I love is fragile. The life that I won't let go of will go. But the love of God will never disappear. And that's why God's love is better than life. I don't know the motivation or everything that went on in the head of that pilot who committed that dreadful act of murder, taking his own life, but many, many others as well. I don't know and I don't want to speculate on that. But I do want to say this, that a Christian will always have something, I hope, that is more precious to them than their life. But it's not hatred. It doesn't want to kill other people. It's not despair. It's not giving up. It's saying that God's love is better than life. Therefore, I can spend my life serving others and I can spend my life, and if I die, I die. If I die in the service of the Lord, I die. If I am a martyr or a witness in that sense, then so be it, because the love of God is more precious to me than my life. Now, you can nod your head and go, yeah, yeah, that's, I agree with that, that's wonderful, that's tremendous. But the proof of the pudding will be tomorrow. The proof of the pudding will be at work. The proof of the pudding will be in how you serve others and the anxieties and the thoughts and the fears that you have and what comes in there. And you need to come to the psalm early in the morning. You need to come in the evening, lie on your bed, and you need to be able to say, Lord, your love is better than life. And if you can't say it, say, Lord, show me your love so that I will know that your love is better than life as we take communion we are saying to jesus you are my god we're taking it he's saying to us you are my people it is a great exchange it is not a ritual it is not a a, a work 
that you, you know, you're doing a religious duty and God is going to be pleased with you. It's an acknowledgement of the deepest and most profound truth that you will ever experience that the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. And you're saying, Lord, your love is better than life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, and grant that as we take communion that we would uh, be able to think about what we have seen in your word and apply it to our own. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.